Hello and welcome to another mini-sode. Today, we're talking about the healthcare industry aftershocks coming on after the pandemic. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hotshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. So, J.J., we are, you know, kind of talking about this as after the pandemic. I don't think anyone has necessarily officially declared the pandemic over. I don't think so. But in terms of, uh, you know, what we might say was the height of the pandemic in terms of um, the amount of time and effort we were spending specifically on COVID-19 because of volumes and acuity and and all of that stuff, um, we're kind of in that uh, maybe transitioning out of the pandemic phase. Um, But it's certainly not as severe as it was in terms of its impact on operations within healthcare. But there are some after effects or aftershocks uh, when it comes to economics within the healthcare industry, right? Absolutely. So it's multifactorial. Um, and we can dissect some of these things here real quick. So first, you know, a lot of hospitals through the pandemic uh, received what were called uplifts. And these are just payments from either the state or the federal government. Uh, Specifically, at first, the federal government. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about how state governments now are getting involved in each of the respective states. But first, the federal government called provider relief funds. Mm -hmm. All right. And they they implemented several strategies. The first strategy was really to look at, all right, we as the government can give you an advanced payment Mm -hmm. uh, on your Medicare. All right. So we're going to look at what you did over the last year and we're going to give you an advanced payment. That'll Mm -hmm. help you get through what we didn't know at the time. Now, we knew two things. Number one, the money would come to us but the money would have to be paid back to the federal government and that that would be done through time. Mm -hmm. So you really, while you had access to cash for a brief period of time, you also had to make sure you accrue it to pay it back. Right. So it wasn't free gifted money. Now, that's one pot. In the other pot, which is most attractive to hospitals of all sizes, was what was called provider relief funding. Mm Mm-hmm. And that really looked at, you know, what your losses were in previous years. So you took a look at your income statement, you know, how well did you do in the previous years? All right, now, during the pandemic, what were your losses? Mm -hmm. And then the government gives you funds to help supplement your budget. And so that kept a lot of hospitals afloat Mm -hmm. uh, during that period of time. Then, at the same time that's happening, there was a lot of state chatter going on throughout the nation about dollars from the federal government being appropriated to the state government mm-hmm. that eventually got their way to healthcare. Right. Okay? Which some of it is still happening still, even still happening. now. Some of that money is still, you know, You're coming right. through. Absolutely. Some of it was for, you know, looking at PPE and making sure we had product supply, those type of things. Mm-hmm. And so what we see now is as the federal government released all those dollars to the respective states, the state legislatures in each state had to mm-hmm. determine where are we going to put those dollars. Right. Now, I think if I recall, a few states said, no, we're not taking your federal government money. Most states did. And then they get to say, all right, here's where the money gets to mm-hmm. go. And so they allocated money for education. They allocated money for, you know, public health and public health looking at uh, bolstering the work that's done from the pub- public health uh, agencies throughout Michigan. Um, that's what Michigan did because they were grossly underfunded before the pre-pandemic. pandemic. And then you have the added workload of a pandemic. Exactly. 
in an already underfunded yes. agency to do its work before Absolutely. that was part of it. And, you know, we talked with our health director uh, for our Tri-County Health Department, and it's the story everywhere. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter where you go. The reality of it was pre-pandemic, underfunded. They had cut so many programs the state right. had. I mean, just dozens of programs and funding that was going through the local health departments. And so allocation of money went there. An allocation then came to primary care, came to your hospitals, Mm -hmm. and some of them were even broken down into what size of hospital you are, and a certain allocation went to that here in Michigan. Now, every state's different, so I'm only referencing Michigan. Mm -hmm. So knowing that provider relief funding came at the federal level with the advance payments to hospitals, it kept them afloat for a good year and a half. Mm -hmm. Some argue that it put a stopgap method in of the hospital's closing that would have normally closed a year and a half ago. Now, interestingly, you and I read a report recently that said that hospital closures had slowed down during Mm -hmm. the pandemic. Well, here's why. It's because when you infuse cash into those systems, obviously they can afford to operate. And so the provider relief funds, it's here, it's going really well. The, The advance payments, we've got that. The state's given some money. Well, then... As with anything, it stops. Right. And as it dries up, you're back to your budgeting as you normally did. Surviving on your operations and any investments that you have. Absolutely. In most hospitals, remember, rural hospitals specifically, operating on 0% margin at times. Some may be one if they're lucky. Uh, Many are loss and Mm -hmm. have been over over the last several years uh, prior to the pandemic. And then the pandemic comes, you get an uplift, you flow it a little bit. Now we're back to the reality. Right. And that reality is, again, looking at how do you do more with less? Mm -hmm. It's it's the proverbial, you know, question has always been, how do you do more with less? less. Right. Well, we've had to figure that out. Right. And we'll talk about our strategies, I think, in a minute. Mm-hmm. But Rachel, I think, you know, there were many factors uh, that have come into play here most recently. Right. Why the largest number of hospitals have posted their largest losses in history. Yes. And if huge, it, huge in this last quarter. Yeah. Just Google um, it. Yeah. And I, I was looking at that the other day. Um, if you scan those headlines, we're getting um, here's some examples. Uh, Advocate Aurora posts two hundred and fifty three million dollar net loss in Q1. Providence's operating loss hits five hundred and ten million in Q1. Advent Health posts four hundred and seventeen point seven million dollar loss in Q1. Kaiser posts net loss of nine hundred and sixty one million in Q1. So, I mean, it just it, it goes on and on. Um We're seeing this across the industry, not just in the big systems. It sounds like a bigger deal when you hear the bigger numbers, right? Um, But even in rural hospitals, right? Absolutely. The challenges are not related um, to size necessarily. We've already been dealing with that. Right. But we kind of have a perfect storm of a couple different things, right? Inflation. Yeah. Wages for traveling and temporary staff. And then also how that impacted uh, retention of yeah. current staff, which led to a lot of wage adjustments and really changes in the market rates for a lot of positions, right? Yeah, we could spend probably an hour on each of those topics. Um, what I will tell you for uh, now in, in in looking at, you know, how we closed out April and May, you know, we we are blessed to have an operating income 
so mm-hmm. far. However, we close you know out April with a operating loss for that month. Mm-hmm. Still have an overall year-to-date right. operating income, but not many hospitals are able to brag about that right mm-hmm. now. They're they're closing their quarters or their months out with millions and millions and millions of dollars in losses. Mm-hmm. And what that does is that eats into their what's called cash on hand. Right. And pretty soon that reserve goes down. And then their ability to buy capital, their ability to to have a good bond rating potentially. Mm-hmm. All of those things are impacted by that number. And so those numbers are very important. So whether you're big or small, the reality of it is, you know, patients were not using hospitals and emergency services and were not using ORs or not getting their diagnostics done during the pandemic because state after state, we were telling patients to stay home. Mm-hmm. We did this, Rachel, to ourselves right. Right. in terms of looking at what has happened out of this. And it's taken us so long to... To get out of this now post-pandemic that we're all scratching our head going, well, what happened? Well, what happened was around the nation, governors and legislators were encouraging people to stay home. Right. Health department directors in each of those respective states. Hospital associations. Hospital associations were saying stay home. We didn't know, right? Right. We're trying to prevent exposure, but the unintended consequence is a consumer behavior yes. change in, in in a sense um, in terms of how people receive their health care and also what people have learned to live without or suffer through, yeah. unfortunately. Well, they've learned. You know, one of the things is that we, we've studied is the, you know, habits of consumers in the emergency department that pre-pandemic, it would I would come in for a migraine, a backache, a footache. Well, they learned through the pandemic that they've been told by whoever that it's not safe to go in there because you could contract COVID. So they've stayed away and they've learned to stay away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not healthy to a certain degree. Yes, you should see primary care for your migraines. Resolve those. You shouldn't use your emergency department as your primary care. We get all of that. But people still were not going to the emergency department for serious uh, incidents and or feelings of, you know, stroke or those type of things. You know, and that idea of waiting it out will result in loss of life. Mm-hmm. So so what we know is now we enter this campaign of get back in and use your ER, get back in and get your diagnostics, go get your regular annual physical, do this, do that. And we're, we're hitting it hard, but what has happened is it hasn't caught up yet in our revenues around the country. Right. And so we said don't come in. They didn't come in. They're still not coming in. Now we're telling them to come in. The revenue still isn't there. The provider relief funding now is dried up. Mm-hmm. The President Biden made an announcement several months ago, his administration did, saying that any additional dollars, we thought if Hospital A and B didn't use it, maybe C would get it. We were kind of excited. Well, what happened is that money was pulled back in and it was not distributed to, to health care. Mm-hmm. What it was said is that we'll be aligning other priorities in the administration. At that time, the conflict that was going on, the war in Ukraine. And the reality of that was the monies that we knew that we were hopeful to get went back into the federal government. So the hope of getting additional dollars in the future is now gone. Right. And so provider relief funding dries up. You have all these incidents. And then as you just mentioned, we have this great resignation, they call it, Rachel. Mm-hmm. People were fleeing health care left and right. Mm-hmm. They were leaving health care either in retirement or just getting out of the industry altogether. They weighed all of the consequences associated with that, including their own personal debt, et cetera. And some of them, as we know, went into markets like manufacturing right. and teaching and did some other things outside of healthcare where they left those hospitals with vacant positions and what those hospitals have to do. They had to reach out to staffing agencies. What mm-hmm. staffing agencies do during this crisis? Did they help us, Rachel? 
Oh, well, they uh, provided the people at quite a premium. Yeah, we call it a significant markup. So we would go from anywhere of $75 an hour Mm pre-pandemic to, let's say, top of the line, $80, $85 for like a CCU nurse experience. I mean, it just, it varied, but anywhere from $75 and onward. We saw pricing at $225 an hour for travelers in critical care and other places, it's, specialty departments. I mean, it's we, there's a whole episode that there we is. did on this there because is. of how frustrating right. it is. But, but yeah, this pay. is one. Yeah, we had to. When you're a hospital, you don't have a choice. You've you got to take care of your patients. Have to pay. So, you know, of course, the agencies understand we'll pay whatever we have to pay to keep our organizations running and keep we our patients to. cared for. Yeah, care for the patient, generate the revenue. You have to have volume. You have to have, uh, obviously, caregivers. So what happened is during this pandemic, when prices started to increase to 150, 175, 200 an hour, um, that hit these institutions very hard because now instead of five travelers, we need 15. Instead of paying 75, we're paying 200 an hour. So what happened in, and we're still hearing it, and I'll give you an example locally, uh, millions of dollars every month that hospitals are spending for that labor cost. Mm -hmm. For Hillsdale, our small hospital, $340,000 in the month of April that we spent just for travelers. Mm-hmm. Now, if you annualize that out, $4 million hit to our bottom line yeah. is unsustainable with right. a zero zero percent margin. Right. That means that $4 million comes out of our day's cash on hand, mm-hmm. and that lowers that, and trips covenants, and all of these things. And where I'm only $4 million, I have colleagues that are spending that a month. And oh travelers yeah. because they have to bring in a hundred right. or or seventy five, and so we're seeing more and more of that. So that contributed. Mm-hmm. You had the mm-hmm. high cost of labor. Then the other issue, you had individuals coming to us in hospital system saying, um, "I can go make twenty dollars at Walmart. I'm not going to be making fourteen here." So we had to increase the wages. Mm-hmm. We had to give you know adjustments across the board. Right, because you saw that in industries outside of healthcare. Oh yeah. Um, and then you also saw it within healthcare, but in a way that we were now competing more closely with non-healthcare entities for certain types of positions that we wouldn't have dealt with before. And then we're competing with traveling agencies who are offering nurses these fat paychecks um, to leave their hospitals. We're competing with them to keep our staff. And that also affected the market as a whole, not just Hillsdale Hospital, right? So oh, yeah. it it increase the market rate for, uh, you know, for nursing in particular, but um, in general. Now, we're not, you know, saying our, our staff don't deserve to be well paid. They do, absolutely. But when we're trying to just talk about the big picture and, and what the factors are that contributed to this, those are the factors. Yeah, absolutely. And as you indicated, it's it's a, it's across the industry and it's the cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. There's no other way around it. Right. Now, we're starting to see it level off just a little, right. not much, but a little. And so you factor that in. So mm-hmm. So for us, unbudgeted, unplanned, unreimbursed by the government. Right. That's us out of the bottom line. Now, at the same time, the payers aren't paying us any more money. Nope. You know, Medicare doesn't say, you know what, I recognize you have this problem. You're going to get extra money. Medicaid doesn't say, hey, we're going to increase this. Not at all. Right. We don't add care provided by traveling nurse to, you know, the bill. To get an increase in the reimbursement. So you add that on. Now, again, cost of doing business. Well, something else happens. The supply chain. Mm -hmm. The supply chain, all of a sudden we start hearing about Huh. Lack of supplies. Mm -hmm. So what happens in a market economy when there's a lack of supply? Well, when the demand goes up, what else happens to the price? 
it goes it up. Goes up. To, to reach equilibrium in the marketplace right. where supply has to equal demand. And mm-hmm. so the only way you get there, if you have a limited amount of supply, uh, is to obviously increase, in, increase the pricing. So what we see is now across the board increases in mm-hmm. everything, Rachel. Yeah. That's right. our energy. That's mm-hmm. to get the gas to come in here. That's to get the oxygen to come in here. That's everything across the board increases. Mm-hmm. And so we're witnessing, you know, in some industries, 25% increase in certain purchases that we're making. Yeah. 25%, mm-hmm. you know, moderate anywhere from 5 to 7%, but up to 25%. Right. Again, unbudgeted, unplanned, unreimbursed by the government. Right. We have to absorb that cost with the same or less volume than we had pre-pandemic because everybody said, I'm not going to the hospital. Right. So we've got to balance it all in order to keep our hospitals going. Well, so you have this going, you got the supply chain issue, and then all of a sudden we're hearing rumblings, double digit inflation. You know, right now, seven and a half percent. You're hearing talk about up to 10 percent. That's a concern Mm -hmm. because the inflation will impact our business model. Right. Because so goes inflation. So goes everything else at this hospital. Right. And so then my vendors are reaching out to me and my contractors are reaching out to me and said, yeah, we do provide you this service, but we have to increase it. Right. And oh, yes, we are providing you the hospitalist and the CRNAs. And guess what? We have to increase that because they're all demanding pay increases. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the cost just explodes. Right. And for struggling hospitals, even if you're not struggling, even with cash on hand, hospitals, you eat away at that cash. That is not a sustainable model for the future. Right. And that, Rachel, is the perfect storm that we are facing right now. So, there are some solutions in my mind. You know, we are looking at a growth strategy here locally. Mm-hmm. What can we do to keep those patients here, you know, in, in our service area, provide them what they need, encourage them to come back to use a service. And we're starting to see that migration back. We right. also did things like we established a skilled nursing facility before COVID. Mm-hmm. And that's been a good business model for us. We offer other services that are outpatient now. We build a hyperbaric oxygenation chambers and we also have a wound care program, an outpatient pain clinic. And all of these things are necessary. Mm-hmm. In order to bolster the bottom line net revenue so you can pay for now all of these losses. But there has to be some federal intervention. Mm -hmm. Now, you know me. I don't like big government. Right. But I'm telling you, Rachel, we've had Scott Becker on this program before. Hundreds of hospitals at risk of closing in America, big and small, doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. Mergers and acquisitions are not the answer. Listen to our podcast on that. And so we need some type of federal intervention because so goes your community hospital. So goes your community. Right. We're the third largest employer in the county. Most rural hospitals are either the second or the third, or even some that are number one, the largest employer in those respective communities. Mm -hmm. Imagine a community without a hospital or your health care is 55 or an hour, hour and a half away. That time is tissue, we say. Mm -hmm. People that need to get to a care center immediately to have TPA administered and a stroke or whatever it is. When you have to drive 50 minutes now, you have the potential loss of life. Right. And so all of these things are why we prop up local health. And that's why we started this podcast for the purpose of advancing rural health in America to say to Mm -hmm. the legislators, we need to do something different. Right. Too many hospitals have closed in America since 2010. Mm -hmm. And that was the impetus before COVID. Right. And now you got that little uplift during COVID. Now we're hearing about hundreds and hundreds of others that will close post-pandemic. This has to be stopped, Rachel. It does. And I think, you know, we, we've talked before about how, you know, applying free market economics to healthcare, 
Well, this is what you get. This is. Right? Where we have, you know, hospitals are, you know, having financial issues across the country. Um, You know, some of those that uh, some of those large systems that I mentioned, some of their losses were net losses, even if they had an operating um, positive operating income. Um, they might have had a net loss because of stock market uh, issues. And, um, you know, most of them had operating losses as well. Um, But it, you know, overall, it's still, it's a problem regardless of where the loss came from. you're right. It's a problem for healthcare because we, what the work that is done here is critical to the life and health of the people that we serve. In those communities. Right. And, you know, so, again, it's a problem everywhere. But when you think of rural communities that already struggle to have adequate health care, we have to, as a country, stop ignoring the fact that your ability to have access to health care, to be a healthy individual, to have life-saving care within an appropriate distance is dependent on your zip code. Yeah, absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head. Um, you know what? This isn't about protecting you and me and my job and your job. We can get no. jobs. We can get jobs. The issue is providing care to a community that's impoverished, mm-hmm. to communities typically rural that you know have limited access to specialty care, right? Um, and that have transportation barriers mm-hmm. like none, right? Like no public transportation, right? And so when you remove that health system. Uh, from that respective community, it's it's it for them. Mm-hmm. Not only is it the economic downturn, but it's also the health outcomes are much worse. Right. Patients do not seek treatment. They die right. sooner. Right. They aren't able to get their medications. Right. They, chronic disease chronic becomes... Chronic disease management you know, is even, gone. Right, right. It becomes even more of a dangerous diagnosis because you don't have access to the care, the regular care that Absolutely. you need for chronic disease. Or it's, you know, far enough away that you just are not likely to keep up with the care that's needed, but sometimes, again, are literally not able to because of the barriers of transportation and time. You know, if you have a job and you are getting an hourly wage, you can't just say, hey, I'm going to head out and go to this uh, healthcare appointment an hour and a half away. I have to do this every other week. You can't. Um, so you guys can still just pay me like normal, right? Yeah, you know, right, like that's right. not how that works. Doesn't work that way. And and you know, Rachel, if you think about it, so uh, you know, the whole model has shifted, and our focus really is not on uh, inpatient anymore, right? Right. I mean, we're looking at outpatient because who who would have thought that a hospital CEO would say ever, I don't want patients on the inpatient side, right. but you, but <laughs> but the payers aren't paying for that. Well, and you want people to be, you know, the purpose behind that, you want people to be healthy, healthy. enough to stay out of the yes, hospital. Yes. So are we really doing health care or sick care, as you know, exactly. we've heard people talk about. Yeah. Um, are we paying attention to, again, keeping people healthy, keeping them out of the hospital? Right. And sick care, uh, that's, you know, that's that's a response. Uh, right. Health care is being proactive, you know, and looking at the, the, the totality of the patient's uh, care, you know, sitting down with them, talking about all the factors in their mm-hmm. life. And that's what I think we do well. Yes. You know, we have care management. We look at our ACO involvement. Mm-hmm. We look at all of those factors. It's a very personal it approach. Is. And it's much more holistic. It is. As you were describing. Yeah. So, I mean, we presented a huge problem today. 
yes. on this, you know, podcast. But <laughs> hey, I think the solution. Yes, hospitals are losing money. Have a, great week. Money. Have a great week. <laughs> yeah, good luck at your hospital. But I, I think there's some there's some lessons in this and some solutions. Um, number one, we've had to learn through the pandemic to be, you know, agile. We've had to right. learn to quickly respond to all the changes. Let's use that for our benefit. You know, what else can healthcare do? Can we partner? You know, and I'm not saying mergers and acquisitions, but to have a relationship, a partnership with someone to provide services in your respective community that you could not otherwise get. So mm-hmm. using telemedicine as an opportunity for that, you know, bringing in patient services and like we've done and outpatient right. services, that's the good news. The other opportunity, I think, is advancing this this notion of hospital supplements or uplifts or hospital safety net, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. but providing an opportunity. For example, you know, I was just informed this week that we're at risk of losing what's called our low volume adjuster, which mm-hmm. means for rural hospitals like mine, not critical access because they're not applicable, but rural hospitals where right. you have a low volume, you get an adjustment mm-hmm. for that lower volume. And that could be upwards of a million dollars for small rural hospitals. Mm-hmm. And so the problem is, is that there's consideration right now um, that that's not, not going to be that. renewed. And the problem is that's another hit to your bottom line. Right. How do you make that up? Then you throw into there maybe a physician who gets injured or you throw into there maybe you can't get someone recruited into that community. Mm -hmm. This is why there has to be some type of support from either the state or the federal government to say, okay, how do we keep people healthy? Right. And the best way to do that is to preventative medicine, Mm -hmm. right, which the hospitals do very well um, because you don't want your plans, Medicaid, Medicare, to all be emergent plans. In other Mm -hmm. words, that's going to be the highest cost because your emergency department is going to be three times the cost of your inpatient stay, right? Right. You ever got an emergency bill, Rachel? Uh, I've got an ambulance bill yeah. and then, yes, an emergency bill for Not about fun. four hours and some uh, IV medication. And yeah. whoo, Whoa. that was a pretty penny. That's a pretty penny. And so why would why would Medicaid or Medicare want to pay that, you know, long term when the focus should be on this side of it, which is preventative care? Right. And so wellness and well care. So, you know, there needs to be some more discussion about this. Not reactive medicine, not really looking at it just as well care uh, or looking at it as sick care, but looking at it as how do we take care of the patient from the beginning and say, you know what, let's keep you out of the system. So mm-hmm. when you have the low volume adjustment go away and you have provider relief go away and you have OB stabilization money in, in the state go away, you then scratch your head and say, if the government reinstates that 2% sequestration, uh, that's going to probably close some places. Yeah. Right. And there goes the health care for that community. A very serious issue, one in which you and I have been raising to our congressional leaders, mm-hmm. not only ours, but across the United States, associations. And I think if we ever have an opportunity to capture this, it has to be right now. It's a perfect storm. You know, someone once said, don't let a crisis go to waste. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a crisis and we have to address it. Thank you for joining us for today's mini-sode. If you have a topic or issue you want us to cover on a future mini-sode, shoot us an email at marketing at hillsdalehospital.com. You can also find Hillsdale Hospital on Facebook and Instagram. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. You can also find us now on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO, JJ. Rachel's at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow our podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. 
Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.